Hello everyone, it's May 22nd, 2018. Have you ever thought about self-assembling modular telescopes that solar sail to the Earth-Sun L2 Lagrange point? Dmitry Savansky has. He thinks outside the monolithic box, and he's going to break this concept down for us and lift off. And we have Craig the Tower. Welcome to episode 159 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I think I'm all bantered out. Did you have anything in particular yeah. you wanted to talk about? I could do some editing and put it all after no. I just said that. But no, 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 no. <laughs> we talked no. about cats. <laughs> we talked about cats for a good 10 minutes or something. Um, and I can confirm, because you had said it half ingested, but I confirmed that there is a podcast called Cat Talk. So if you want to <laughs> know about cats, I haven't listened to it, but maybe give it a listen because... Cats are interesting, at least to me. I mean, not necessarily cat owner stories, but uh, as a species, they're very interesting animals. I find myself on Wikipedia, like looking up things about cats, big cats, small cats, all kinds of stuff, watching YouTube videos, not just cat videos, but like stuff about cheetahs and things like that, because they're, uh, you know, big cats. They're, uh, they're so, interesting. So I have, a, I have a question for you. Um, uh-huh. what, what do house cats and domesticated pigs have in common? It's something about their history. You I don't know. Just tell you? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they both self-domesticated. So like with dogs, we had to go out and domesticate them and, and cows as well. But for some reason, we think about domesticated animals as being really friendly. But like cats, we think of as being like barely tolerant of our existence, mm-hmm. even though they're the ones who chose to be with us. We certainly have bred dogs, but I thought that dogs kind of self-domesticated in the sense that they started hanging around people because they had food. So... That's kind of the choice, you know, that's kind of the dog's choice when you think about it. Well, yeah, but I mean, we we intentionally began to affect what they are, whereas like pigs, uh, their biology actually changed in response to human settlements and they they became better at being around humans on their own. Whereas with dogs, we had to selectively breed them to make them better to be around humans. Well, the story that I heard was that you had wild wolves and they would come around and they would eat scraps. But the ones that were afraid of people would, of course, run away. But the ones that weren't would stay. And so they had an evolutionary advantage because they could eat food and not be scared away or, you know, not try to eat a person and then be killed. I kind of think of that as self-domestication to some degree. But certainly since then, there's been a huge, you know, influence of people on dogs. They are bred. And I mean, just look at all the dogs that exist now. I mean, it's just, you know, all the various varieties. It's it's crazy. They don't look like wolves anymore. I mean, some of them do, but... My dog certainly doesn't. Yeah, if you want to know more about that, listen to Dog Talk. I'm sure that too is a thing. So, <laughs> I'm sure it's a thing. Let's move on to some space talk, and uh, let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. So who do we have for some winners? All right, so this week, I think we just have three winners. Uh, Valentin Frank, Anderson Denova, and Chris Radcliffe. All familiar names. So the clue for this week was book sets that don't match. Uh, and you'll totally see what I mean in a second. So this week in spaceflight history is May 25th of 1973. It was the launch of Skylab 2. So there were uh, three crewed Skylab missions, Skylab 2, Skylab 3, and Skylab 4. Of course, Skylab 1 was the launch of the actual space station. But unfortunately, miscommunications within NASA um, resulted in a little bit of nomenclature confusion uh, so that the uh, the emblems or the mission patches um, said Skylab I, Skylab II, and Skylab numeral 3, which absolutely drives me nuts. Not only were the patches different from the actual mission designations, they also weren't even internally consistent. So there you go. That's the clue. We had talked about it before, the naming of 
that was, I think, just kind of botched or something. Like, they just didn't have a good handle on it. And so it's really confusing when you're talking about Skylab as to which one and, yeah, the difference between the Skylabs and the Skylab missions and all of that. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't know, I can't keep track of it. Uh, I mean, it's not that hard to keep track of, but it is definitely confusing. So anyway, Skylab 2 was the first crewed mission to Skylab, the space station. Uh, On board was Pete Conrad in the commander's seat, science pilot Joe Kerwin. That wasn't a thing for all of Apollo, right? Because you had the LEM pilot. Uh, And then finally, pilot Paul Weitz um, was on board. So uh, we might have mentioned this. I don't remember um, how much we talked about this. I did a quick search uh, through our website and I couldn't find too much. But Skylab 2 almost had a complete disaster on launch. Um, I I think we've talked about this bit. But basically, um, ground support equipment... Uh, GSE had an issue in part of their electronic setup where they had um, made an update, um, but the update was performed incorrectly. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but basically when they commanded ignition, the instrument unit on board decided that it was time to switch to external power, which is not a great thing if your rocket is about to leave the vicinity of the external power. So if that command had been successfully put through, what would have happened is you would have had the entire rocket start moving upwards, the engines would be running, and then all of a sudden the electronics would completely die but the engines would still be running at whatever setting they were at when the electronics died. Um, So you would have had a rocket uh, flying uncontrolled, which is pretty much a worst case scenario. Uh, Luckily, the command was very short. It was less than a second, and you needed apparently a second or more uh, to get this relay to switch over. And so luckily that didn't happen. It was an issue that they noticed, that they resolved uh, and fixed for the future. It, It wasn't something that could happen again. So yeah, Skylab was uh, a hot mess. Um, it had uh, basically a panel come loose uh, on the way up part of the fairing. And so there was a lot of damage. And so Skylab 2 was basically a mission to recover the space station and then do science. You know, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of like, hey, your, your tent is all busted up and you got to fix it before you can start camping. So uh, just a quick overview of some of the crazy things that they had to do. So uh, they had one solar array completely ripped off, and then the other one didn't deploy properly. There was a damper um, that kept it from moving too quickly, but that damper totally seized up. I I believe that's what happened. Um, And so they had to try to get this thing to pop open. And so first what they did was they literally opened the door and... Um, had two people outside of the spacecraft um, basically holding onto each other's legs, um, trying to reach this thing with a 10-foot pole. They're doing that as both vehicles are free-flying, and so they ended up using a lot of Skylab's uh, nitrogen cold thruster fuel because they you know, are pushing against the station, and so the station and uh, Apollo, the Apollo spacecraft are pushing away from each other, being pulled towards each other, and having to to correct that. So imagine pulling on this thing so hard that you can add inertia to these giant spacecraft. Um, That's absolutely what happened. The solar array was eventually fixed, uh, not on that stand-up EVA, but it was fixed on the first station EVA where they actually went out and uh, 
did just a regular crawling over the station EVA um, and some handholds were missing and this and that. And they ended up uh, being able to cut a cable and get this thing to pop open. And when it did, it flung both Conrad and Joe Kerwin off of the structure. So they were just on their tethers and having astronauts off structure is a really bad thing. And uh, that must have been pretty terrifying. <laughs> I'd say so. I think that we discussed this, didn't we, during a, we haven't done this in a while, Space Hack. Oh yeah, I bet you're right. Uh, I think we talked about the Sun Shield. Yeah, specifically the Sun Shield. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Sun Shield was basically deployed out of a tiny science airlock and it was like a parasol and it was enough to shield the station uh, enough so that the you know air conditioning could basically take hold because uh, otherwise it was uh, heating more and more each each day cycle and then uh, that also required I don't know if we mentioned this but the station got so hot that glue and other synthetics started off gassing um, and they were specifically worried about toluene which is super not great to breathe and so before the astronauts actually ingressed the station they did two full um nitrogen purges uh, uh sorry four nitrogen purges where they emptied pulled a vacuum i'm sure they didn't go down to a full vacuum but they pull as much air as they're comfortable out and then flushed it with nitrogen and did that four times and then finally added oxygen. And then one last thing I wanted to talk about was they had issues docking with the station after their stand-up EVA, but before they ingressed the station, they couldn't dock. And to fix that, they actually had to put on their pressure suits, depressurize the command module, and partially disassemble the probe assembly on the front of the spacecraft to, to get it to actually do a, a correct hard dock with the station. So you know, an absolutely crazy mission with lots of, you know, wonderful space hacks. And they ended up staying in orbit for, I think, over over 80 days. In any event, they set a duration record at that time. Obviously, we've passed that now. But yeah, they ended up staying and, and doing some really successful uh, science, including using the um, the Apollo telescope, which was, you know, stuck onto the side of Skylab. Uh, which was a telescope that literally required you to get out of the space station to change the film. Yeah, probably not the most elegant solution, I suppose, if you if you have to get out of the space station. But it, it was what it, you know. It's what we had on the hand. Cool. All right. What is next week's clue? All right. Next week in 2010, the clue is we tried using parachutes first. In 2010, we tried using parachutes first. I don't know just now, but I feel like if I thought about this, I would uh, I could come up with something. Yeah. I think you could. Well, if you think you know what this might be in reference to, just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Load and go make it the go-ahead. So what is load and go? This refers to fueling up a Falcon 9, or I guess any rocket, when you think about it, after the crew has already been onboarded. So that's something that, you know, is a point of contention, I think, between SpaceX and NASA. But it looks like it might actually happen now. And of course, this is important, right? Because for those who maybe don't quite remember, the whole point or the whole reason why this is kind of a necessity is because uh, Falcon 9, and I don't know if this is going to always be the case with the Block 5, but um, they like to do the super chill densified propellant, which I thought was only for missions that required it. So is it confirmed that this is something that they do with every launch going forward? Yes, I, I believe that after it was the f more full thrust or more, the, the one after full thrust, 
um yeah they they decided to to do fuller thrust okay sure uh that they decided to do densified propellant on every launch and it's just to increase margins at this point um especially if you're going to be landing that first stage you want your margins as wide as possible um so yeah i don't think that that's going to be something that they're going to step down from doing and i don't think it's going to super affect the load and go technique but who knows so this is something that, that is being assessed by the asap or asap which is the aerospace safety advisory panel and we'll talk about them a little bit later in the next story so they're trying to make this evaluation and come to a conclusion um and you know they seem pretty warm to the idea but still it's up to the nasa commercial crew to make that final decision what's interesting is that in a conference call elon musk said that the crew could board either before or after propellant loading and i don't understand is that something that he's just being very gracious and saying and of course they could do that but just as you said uh, they want to have those margins so what is the deal there because i'm assuming if they have to board afterward then the propellant's not going to remain as cold as they need it to be so they're going to lose they're just going to lose that edge there they're going to lose that margin because um, however much propellant is going to boil off or at least the locks will and i don't know about the rp1 yeah well that's a good point yeah densified propellant requires very specific loading timing right and i don't know maybe maybe they can just put people in quick enough that you know that they don't have to worry about their fuel warming up maybe they are getting good enough at topping off densified propellant that they uh, think that they can hold uh long enough to put people in yeah i don't know i don't remember the exact time but i almost want to say it's like 15 minutes you got a good 15 minutes you know like there comes a point where after they've topped it off and they've been chilling and chilling it that at that point you got about 15 minutes before it starts to warm back up again and then you sort of have to start the process all over again but i could totally be wrong there but i feel like it's not a whole lot of time that they have uh, but maybe they've gotten better at it in some way because otherwise i don't see how that's possible so back in 2015 former astronaut thomas stafford who currently i think chairs uh, the iss advisory committee uh he's not so happy about this. Uh, he said, uh, and I quote, there is a unanimous and strong feeling by the committee that scheduling the crew to be on board the Dragon spacecraft prior to loading oxidizer into the rocket is contrary to booster safety criteria that has been in place for over 50 years, both in this country and internationally. So that's just something that is not done. But what's interesting is, it, is that he said prior to loading oxidizer. So what about the fuel? Do you load the fuel generally after you've already put people on board the vehicle? I don't think that fuel is as big a deal, especially because most people don't chill their fuel down. Well, it depends on what it is, though, because I, I, I was thinking... I mean, does that just apply to RP-1 and not hydrogen? In which case, it's even a bigger deal. Uh, yeah, okay. All right. Uh, yeah, that's reasonable. I don't know. I'm just not familiar enough with the whole propellant loading process. I, I don't know how they do it in Russia, but um, I think it makes a fair point. I mean, it's just something that's never been done, so it's definitely a safety concern. But I think that SpaceX, you know, they're pretty confident that this should not be a big deal. I think that Elon Musk even said at one point, he said, you know, you don't fuel up a plane before you put people on board of that. So why would you have to do this with a rocket? And just as long as you have a safe vehicle, which is what needs to be evaluated, then there really is no issue to do so. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. So Dan in the chat says, I, I get comparing planes to rockets in some ways, but comparing it in that way is silly. Planes don't fail 5 to 10% of the time. And I think that's really important. That Well, how often do they fail on the launch pad? And I know that speaking of the Falcon 9, well, you know, at least yeah. once. It's weird because, you know, rockets are really dangerous. And so it makes sense to be as safe with them as possible. Um, and, and I think the way that Dan puts this question or 
puts a statement. I think it's reasonable to think that Elon is not saying, well, if rockets or if airplanes don't do it, rockets shouldn't do it either. I think what he's saying is from an economic and operational standpoint is, you know, this is something that we need to shoot for um, because we see that this is the way that other transportation methods do this. And, you know, it, it seems like a good idea to, to do similarly. So, yeah, the, the question is whether it's really that big of a safety issue. And I, I, I don't know enough about, you know, propellant loading techniques to say whether it's dangerous, but obviously NASA has long believed that it's to it that it's a, an easy way to kind of sidestep a little bit of danger and i think the question is is putting people on before you load your your propellants is that saving you enough time and money to make the extra little bit of risk worth it and uh, i think I think SpaceX clearly thinks that that's the a trade-off that they can make, and NASA is not super convinced, but um, they're they're moving towards it, right? Yeah. As far as how many explosions, catastrophic vehicle failures there have been on the launch pad, I can only think of that one, which was Amos Six, at least in recent memory. I mean, yes, there were some pretty early on, but since that time, I don't I don't think that there's ever been any catastrophic loss of vehicle on the pad during fueling. So that right there tells me that it's not that big of a deal. So, um, I mean, yes, planes don't fail 5 to 10% of the time, but neither do uh, rockets on the launch pad. I but think that, that most of that 5% We is... don't have a lot of data there, though, right? Because SpaceX is treating these propellants in ways that we've never, ever done in the history of, of space flight. So I, Yeah, well, that part's true. Yeah, I, I think specifically, I, I, I think that this is not as going to be as big of an issue. I think that that SpaceX is going to prove out uh, their techniques to NASA's satisfaction. But at the same time, like you can't just say, well, rockets don't explode on the pad, because if we're looking at rockets using densified propellants, yeah, we, we do have a one really good explosion. Obviously, the um, COPV issue that caused Amos 6 to explode has been solved. But that doesn't mean that there isn't potential other issues. Um, we, we don't have a ton of data right now about it. There's always that possibility. I mean, yeah, this is a new technique, so who can say? Um, but I can't really think of anything else. Well, But then mm. again, I never predicted, you know, like Amos 6 would happen. That was something <laughs> right. that, yeah. you know, didn't didn't occur to me. But uh, what else could happen? Or to I anybody. Mean, just because it's colder. Yeah. But just because it's a little colder, how does that make it more dangerous? Well, we it's know denser. in the case of, you know, the COPVs. Well, okay, but how does that make it more dangerous? Well, okay, there, so if you're saying that there's more of it, then sure. Yeah, um, right. But otherwise, <laughs> um, how does that affect the vehicle in any... You know, so, any yeah, Dan says that materials behave differently at different temperatures, and that's exactly why the Amos 6 explosion happened. But also, it's a change. Any change comes with unforeseen risk. And so even if it was, a, you know, a lower-density propellant, like, that is a change. Yeah, specifically, you know, there are material science issues here that you and I are totally unqualified to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I mean, every time you you change, especially drastically change procedures, you need to, you know, spend time to 
get new data and to get reacquainted with it. I wonder how many uh, launches it will take to sort of uh, satisfy NASA because, I mean, they have done mm -hmm. several so far and there hasn't been any issues except for Amos 6. But yeah, that is because of the COPV and that is something that has been fixed. Uh, again, I think during that same conference call where Elon Musk was, I think, trying to assuage the fears of various folks at NASA, he said that, you know, this is something that they have worked on, that they have these new pressure vessels and they will not fail, that they have been tested. The smartest minds at SpaceX have been pouring over this for a year now or something. Like he really tried to drive that point home that, uh, that these will not fail, that these things have been tested and tested, that you need not worry about these helium tanks anymore. I think was pretty much the thrust of what he was saying. As far as any other issues, I don't know what they could be, but you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it'll be fine. And the kind of the point of the reason that we're having this discussion is because NASA's slowly coming around too. If NASA says that something's safe, it's probably safe. They've made very few major mistakes. Let's uh, move on to another concern of uh, the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel. Um, and that is uh, contamination in the SLS core stage. And this has something to do with the engines. There's no specific information just yet, but this was a, just one more thing wrong. And I feel like we do one of these every week, usually in our short and sweet segment where, hey, this is the latest thing that has cropped up with SLS. <laughs> <laughs> so so this time it, it has to do with some kind of tubing, and I could not find out what the material was. Um, but apparently there is a lot of it, and apparently it is, quote-unquote, contaminated with paraffin wax, which is part of the manufacturing process, but it has to be stripped away. And that was not done properly, and it was just discovered that there's a ton of this stuff, maybe even literally a ton of it, I don't know, um, all throughout the tubing of that core stage. And so that's, yeah, that's not good. And the interesting thing is the reason why this tubing is manufactured with paraffin wax is that it's in order to prevent crimping during the manufacturing process. What kind of tubing do you suppose that is? Because you probably know more about this than I do as far as you know how materials behave. Is this some kind of like a rubber tubing? Why would you use paraffin wax to prevent crimping of a hose? Yeah, so I mean like when you're bending metal tubing, you'll often fill it with sand or something else that's incompressible. And it seems, paraffin seems like an odd choice to me. I've never heard of using paraffin to prevent crimping in a machining context. So yeah, my, my thought was that it, it might well be some sort of soft Good, like a like a rubber tubing but they're they're saying that the tubing is in the engine section which makes me think it, it's likely propellant tubing i don't i don't know i i have no clue but you know just one more thing so they're gonna have to disassemble a lot of that take out all that tubing and clean it out um, because there's just too much residual wax in there or too much tubing yeah i don't know how long that's going to take but uh and there's no word on if this is if this is going to delay the shipment of this core stage by december of this year because that's when it's supposed to you know roll off the factory floor and i feel like i said this last week with whatever the previous problem was which was uh no word on if this is going to cause any delays hopefully not but you know this is just one more thing and uh this is something that the aerospace safety advisory panel has to look into but um, that's the latest news on sls issues um maybe we should make that its own segment do you think that's a <laughs> think that's a good no. idea no i don't <laughs> <laughs> We have with us Dmitry Sobransky, and he's going to talk to us about some very interesting technology, which uh, is utterly confusing to me because I have a lot of specific questions that I hope to have answered here. So welcome to the show. I don't know where to begin. Uh, ben, did you have anything to ask outright, or should we just have him describe what this new project is? 
Yeah, yeah. So um, this was a NIAC proposal, right? Yes. Uh, it, this was selected for uh, phase one of the NIAC program. So what crazy thing are you planning on doing? Okay. So the proposal is for uh, a modular design for a space, a giant space telescope. Uh, the title of the proposal was Modular Active Self-Assembling Space Telescope Swarms. So you can tell I tried to stuff as many buzzwords as I could into that title to catch somebody's attention and it worked. But the basic idea is that this would be a different method from what has been proposed or tried before for creating very, very large space structures, uh, specifically with the intent of building giant space telescopes uh, of the scale of about 30 meters in diameter and larger. The idea here is that uh, we're trying to address a problem that pretty much everybody can see that's coming up pretty quickly. Uh, and that is that you know, the, on the astronomy side and also the engineering side, we want to keep building larger space structures. And you know, not just any space structures, but these super precision scientific instruments, the giant space telescopes. But it gets harder and harder because we have very significant launch constraints. You know, there's only so much volume and mass that you can stuff into any one launch. And then when you think about breaking things into pieces, then you have to assemble it somehow in orbit, uh, and it just becomes increasingly difficult. And uh, as I said, lots of very intelligent people have foreseen this, and various people have pitched different ideas for how to address this. And so my idea is that you basically get away from the kind of boutique, bespoke, one-of-a-kind giant space structures that we are used to building uh, in the NASA world, and go instead to full mass production. And so you just churn out a lot, you know, like say a thousand on your first run, because that, that's what you would need for the 30 meter structure. You churn out on the order of a thousand identical modules. And these would be hexagonal spacecraft. They're not really small sats because they're, um, I envision them being about a meter across, but they're small-ish. And uh, the top face of each one of them is a polished flat mirror. And it sits on a backplate that's has a lot of heritage from James Webb is the way that we're thinking about it right now. So it's it's an active structure. It has a couple of struts that let you change the curvature of the mirror. And then it also has uh, individual actuators that let you uh, impose other shapes on the mirrors. And then the whole thing is sitting on what's called the Stewart platform or a, a hexapod, which is allows you to basically tip and tilt and shift from side to side the entire structure. So that's on the top end of these. On the bottom end of these is a tether structure uh, attached to a solar sail. And so the first step is you get a thousand of these up into space and you can do these either by buying out whole launches and so you can package a whole bunch of them in a single launch or better yet, you uh, fly them as payloads of opportunity. So anytime anybody has a spare mass and volume allocation and they're going to an appropriate orbital insertion, you just ask to tag along and you know pay some amount. Uh, it, it varies by circumstance. But the, there's no requirement to get all of these up in space at the same time. The, the idea is that you just get them up, however. And then they use their solar sails to navigate to the vicinity of the Sun-Earth second Lagrange point. So this is this kind of semi-mythical point in space that the math predicts for a very restricted treatment of the orbital dynamics. But that's just a really nice place to put space telescopes for various reasons. Uh, so James Webb is going there. Uh, w first, uh, the intent is to go there and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and so these things swarm in that location and then they assemble. And as they assemble, they're basically, uh, the assembly process is they're building up uh, this giant primary mirror that's 30 meters or more in diameter. And so that puts the uh, mirrors uh, side to side so that you're, you're basically creating one long um, segmented mirror, or sorry, one large area segmented mirror. Uh, and then at the same time, the solar sails are overlapping beneath and they're forming a planar sun shield. 
So if you've ever seen pictures of what James Webb will look like, it has uh, this very cool giant tennis court sized sun shield that's uh, going to protect the telescope from prevent the, the sun from illuminating the telescope optics and also uh, provide a benign thermal environment and do all sorts of other things. Uh, and it's just basically layers and layers of, of sheeting material, which means that you could also assemble this out of individual sun shields. And so when you're done, you have this giant primary mirror and you have a sun shield for it. You can use more of the modules to create a secondary or you can fly a specially built secondary mirror. And then you use the degrees of freedom on the individual mirrors to create the overall mirror shape that you need to do science. And then you have your giant space telescope. So that's the concept. That's the concept, right? Step one is proving that uh, the physics back it up and that you know the all of the various objections that I'm sure uh, any person who is at all familiar with uh, space is instantly raising their heads, <laughs> right? That's our job now over the next nine months of the NIAC is to kind of hit those tall poles and, and show that this is not just a completely insane idea. And of course, we have to do some initial kind of back of the envelope cal uh, calculations in the proposal to get the, the grant in the first place. And now the idea is that over the nine, nine, next nine months, we're going to be doing a lot more and simulating a lot of this and showing that there really is something here that's feasible uh, and that's worth developing further. So this is like, I, I think it's pretty obvious that this is something that is theoretically feasible. I think the question is like, how how close are we to actually being able to do that? What What's your field? Do you, do you think of this as like a 20-year project or closer than that? What, what are you thinking? Uh, I mean, it's definitely, you know, I would never expect an actual full-scale science mission, astrophysics mission based on this concept to fly any earlier than 20 years or so. You know, so in NASA speak, this is kind of a technology readiness level, I would say, uh, two-ish, one-ish. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you guys discuss technology readiness levels yep. on your podcast, but I assume this is something your community is familiar with, right? So this is, you know, we, we've observed the basic physics. We know that individually the pieces of this should work like there's no reason particular reason for us to think that they don't work so now what's left is a lot of very difficult engineering and then demonstrating it but if we can show in this first NIAC phase that you know all the physics line up and that there's no immediate engineering problems that are completely insurmountable without you know completely new science happening uh then it's you know the process begins to actually start maturing different parts of this uh, and that's something that would ha likely happen over the next decade or so. And then doing limited demonstrations on Earth and then doing limited demonstrations in space. And so if this were something that would actually one day form the basis of, of a true astrophysics mission, then th there's a long road ahead of it. But that road includes actually demonstrating pieces of this in space. And that could happen, I think, easily within the next decade. Wow. But again, that's dependent on f us first convincing people that this is a good idea and then getting funding to actually build out parts of it and then getting launch opportunities to actually demonstrate it. So it's a very long road, but I, I do think that it's it's not an unrealistic one. For a TRL of two, you kind of don't even know, right, if if there's going to be, you, you almost don't even know what the what the big hurdles are f for sure. But do you, like, what, what do you see as being the biggest technological solution? Obviously, like right now we have the software to control a swarm. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, super hard to imagine um, if you had the pieces in place that you could write the software to do it. But like, what do you see? 
see as being the biggest, I guess, hardware. I mean, may, maybe software is going to be up there, but it seems to me like hardware is probably going to be the issue. And, and what do you see as the biggest problem you guys are going to have to solve? Um, just let's say to get this up to TRL3. Okay, so first of all, let me just very quickly correct myself. Um, in my proposal, I specifically said that, that at the end of this initial study, I, I felt that we would be at TRL2. Uh, so I, I'm putting us at, at one-ish right now. But oh, wow. um, so okay. specifically... I specifically identified two things that I think are initial major objections to feasibility, right? And one of them actually is uh, to to show that we could do the kind of swarming that we need and then precision alignment using only solar sails as a propulsion source. Because uh, even though you say, you know, swarms have been studied a lot, I do not believe there's been a lot of study of... Um, of swarming via solar sailing. So you don't want to have thrusters on these things. You just want to assemble them using solar sails. Well, so we will have, um, of course, a lot of uh, momentum control hardware. So once they're kind of close together, we will need to be able to precision control their orientation. Okay. Uh, and I, I presumably we will need various things that go along with, with you know, having full reaction control systems and possibly uh, some cold gas thrusters and things like that. Um, but uh, the primary, the initial clumping that we would need to get the swarm together, I envision it would be great if we could uh, figure out a way to do that just using the primary solar sails. So that's that's the first thing that we identified. That was my biggest question is how do you get these things in close proximity and then, you know, sort of uh, lock them into place? Because you can't do that. I would think you can't do that with a solar sail. There are some very precise types of orbital mechanics going on when you have something like, a you know, a large structure. But And I don't even know how it would work if it was out at a Lagrange point, if that makes it easier or harder. Um, well, that's, I guess it's easier than doing it in low Earth orbit, for sure. It is absolutely easier, I think, than doing it in low Earth orbit. And there's various reasons why you would never want to try this. Uh, you know, you don't want to scatter a thousand new things mm -hmm. uh, in low Earth orbit. <laughs> yeah. Right. So L2 right. is uh, is this fascinating place, right? Where you, you know, uh, into first order, you have a balancing of the gravitational forces of the Earth and the Sun, all right? And so it's an unstable equilibrium point. Uh, within the system when you're just considering uh, the system of three bodies. Well, what's known as the circular restricted three-body problem, right, is, is where the Lagrange point arises from. And so, and that's why I call it somewhat mythical, because, of course, that's not mm -hmm. what we have mm -hmm. in the solar system. We have a bunch of other masses. We have the moon, mm -hmm. and then we have all sorts of non-gravitational forces. But it is this really interesting place where the dynamics gets gets tricky, right, because you can't just consider... Keplerian orbits, you explicitly have to consider at least three bodies. And by the end of this, we'll have to consider more, right? We will have to explicitly take into account the moon and so on. Uh, but this also gives you a new handle on doing cool things like this, right? Because there are places in the system that are naturally attracting points. It is an unstable equilibrium point, so things that put, are put exactly at L2 don't stay there. But we also know that there are stable or semi-stable orbits about the L2 point, right? So you can actually be orbiting an empty point in space which is effectively what James Webb is going to be doing. And so we want to take advantage of these dynamics and uh, figure out clever ways where we can use very low energy transfers, right? Which is what solar sailing represents is kind of continuous thrust, super low energy to float and to aggregate. And then once they're close enough, then we can use a very, very small amount of delta V that can be provided by very, very small propulsion systems to do that final docking and precision steering. And so that's the first major element that the next during the next nine months, we have to show that this is basically feasible. And then the second major element is then to show that optically the surface that you create out of all of these uh, mirrors together that is good enough for the science that 
that you would like to do with such, such a structure. So that I identified that as the second major thing that we need to work on over the next nine months. Is, is that really going to be that difficult? I mean, I hope not. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I did think that it was definitely worth studying initially, right? Uh, James Webb is, uh, as you probably know, is a segmented space telescope. It's not a monolithic mirror, right? So it's it's very similar to what I'm saying here, except that their mirror segments are um, specifically designed to all work together. They're not all the same. They're polished slightly differently. And they've got mechanical degrees of freedom on them on top of that. Fewer than uh, what I'm saying, but still enough to change the curvature and the, the placement of each individual one of, of their segments. And I think nominally, this is going to be something like a multiple month checkout period after James Webb gets on its final orbit and deploys. And then they'll basically have this multiple month closed loop control algorithm with the ground where wavefront sensors on board James Webb are going to be taking measurements. Uh, they're going to send that data back down to Earth. It's going to be analyzed. There are uh, sets of mirror commands are going to be generated. And then those are going to be uplinked back up. And so, and then you, you basically close the loop over <laughs> 1.5 million miles of space. Uh, and eventually they will get the wavefront that they need. So it's, it's definitely non-trivial. Uh, as soon as you are starting to talk about segmented optics, uh, things become more difficult to get the kind of surface that you really want. And so I think that this is something that definitely needs explicit demonstration in simulation that we will be able to do this. Do you have any idea of what the mission life of each individual segment would be? Because I'm thinking that by the time you get the last one in place, the first one is maybe in not such great shape. <laughs> Sure. That's that's definitely a concern. Um, that's, you know, I'm going to, I think for a lot of your questions, I'm going to punt and say that that requires significant follow-up study, uh, which is NASA speak for give me more money. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Or rather, university speak to NASA of, of giving more money. Uh, but in, in seriousness, uh, yes, that is a completely valid concern. It, I, I can foresee that if this uh, gets off the ground, it would take a while to uh, to get everything in place. But the wonderful thing about doing this as, as a modular concept is that you can pop individual modules out and replace them. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the other great thing from my point of view about this is that there's no single point of failure anymore. There's no one launch that takes out your whole mission. There's no one component that breaks everything. Everything is massively redundant. And what's really interesting is, is also in, in massively segmented uh, optics like these, because we have experience with this on the ground, right? The next generation of giant ground-based telescopes are also going to be these massively segmented things. So things like the 30-meter telescope, which uh, is nominally going to be built on Mauna Kea, although there's, there's other options, of course, uh, that's in the planning stages right now. And then, then also there's the uh, Giant Magellan Telescope, and there, there's a bunch of others, right? These kind of 30-meter class ground-based telescopes, they're all going to be massively segmented. So we're going to be learning in the next few decades a lot of lessons on the ground that can then be applied to space. But one of the, the things that comes out of these projects is that you can actually start getting science even with a subset of your segments in place, which I believe, I could be wrong about this, but at one point I heard that this was actually a nominal plan for the uh, European uh, extremely large telescope plan, which hmm. is another one of these. Uh, so they would put in um, a subset of mirrors but start, and basically start getting light. And then depending on how you phase them or how you post-process the data, you can get useful science out of them. Hmm. So what that, that's all to say that in the future, if we have this thing built in space and one of the segments just stops working, there probably are ways to remap around it. And of course, you'll lose a bit of capability, but again, it's not 
a showstopper for the entire mission. If you had one of these segments go out that's somewhere in the middle, is it easy enough to kind of slip a new module in or is that a huge issue? Because I can see you sort of doing it like at the perimeter of mm -hmm. the spacecraft, but you have all these little tightly woven solar sails that provide the sun shield and they look kind of like they're folded sort of like shingles on a roof. And how do you slide a new one in place? I know I'm asking like these kind of like somewhat pointed questions and you're probably <laughs> just going to say, hey, you know, we're working on it. But it's just those little things like that that make me think, how is this going to physically actually happen? Because it looks really tricky. Yeah, no, absolutely. And these are all excellent questions. And these are questions that we have to ask ourselves if we actually want to want this to progress to go anywhere. So, okay, there, there's a couple of pieces to that. One of them is that, yes, there's, there's the sun shield is below and it's all the sails kind of stuck together. Uh, but it's going to be at a pretty large distance, larger than, you know, James Webb is pretty much sitting right on top of its sun shield. This one, you can use extendable tethers to, to put it at a larger distance, which has pros and cons, but you need it because the concept is that after the fact, you would want an instrument module to dock with the structure. And so the only way to get it between is that if the sun shield is at a, a quite a distance from the primary structure. So that also allows you, and then of course, you can also pop things both off the bottom and, and off the top if you're talking about popping segments. The specific mechanism that we see for the fine, final alignment of the segments is that there would be um, electromagnets or possibly other methods of, of magnetic mm -hmm. interaction between the modules so that they would basically creep each other up and down. Kind of like, you can think about it as like virtual caterpillar treads that, that inch them up and down. W one of my colleagues, uh, Mason Peck, who's just down the call from, hall from me, he's, he was uh, formerly NASA's chief technologist uh, before he came back to our department uh, a few years back. He, his group works on this really cool thing called flux pinning which is, uh, again, producing magnetic fields through uh, various um, physics that I'm shaking enough on that I don't, don't want to <laughs> say anything. But, uh, but, but basically, it's the same base concept, although done cooler. And, um, and so I definitely we will investigate that as well and, and potentially in the future partner with his group. But that's another method of doing just really fine control of structures in space. And, and they specifically are investigating this for docking applications, which is super relevant. Mm -hmm. So the exact same mechanisms that do your fine alignment in, in construction could also do uh, the ejection, right? That you could basically inch a module out and then let it just drift away. N that said, that's going to be, the hardest part is going to be getting rid of that module because mm -hmm. as we've discussed, it, it doesn't have significant propulsion capabilities of its own without a sun shield. And then getting a replacement one just right into the structure. Right now, I'm not sure how feasible that is without any additional robotic support. So I'm going to completely punt on that part. Basically, I'm going to close and saying, like, we've definitely thought about this. This is another super hard problem. Uh, and so we're going to get through the zeroth order feasibility and then mm. we're going to come back to it. But it's definitely something that's very, very worth thinking about. Okay, so before we get too far away from ground-based telescopes, I wanted to skip back just a little bit. You were talking about how, you know, segmented telescope mirrors are are the you know the new hotness like that's that's what seems to be working now and you also mentioned how all of those segmented mirrors they they don't have identical mirror segments is there a possibility that you're going to well i mean obviously you don't know but like uh, how do you feel about the idea of identical mirror segments being used on earth do you think that that's um gonna buy us the flex is the flexibility that that buys us gonna be worth the lowered 
capacity? I mean, like given the fact that we can walk up and touch the mirror if it's on Earth, do you think that's it's a possibility to simplify things? And do you think that might be helpful here? Taking a step back, right now, the largest, some of the largest telescopes that exist on the ground right now are still monolithic because, you know, at the eight mm. to 10 meter level, you can still cast a monolithic mirror and, and you can still make the, uh, um, the substrate in the back point wide enough that there's not a lot of sag. And so, so it's still doable, right? So uh, the telescope that I'm most familiar with, which is the uh, the Gemini telescopes, uh, there, there's a pair of eight-meter telescopes in Hawaii and in Chile that are virtually interval. These are monolithic eight-meter, eight-ish meter mirrors. The Keck telescopes in Hawaii, which are 10-meter meter mirrors, are cemented. And then the um, large binocular telescope in the uh, continental U.S., that is a pair of, of monolithic 10-meter, right? And that's about kind of the the scale at which you have to start going segmented. I have to say that I do not know a lot about the uh, 30 meter telescope design. So I can't say for sure exactly uh, how different the various segments are. I was When I was talking about different segments, I was specifically talking about James Webb, which is differentiated slightly. Uh, and also the various concepts that I've read about for uh, assembling giant telescopes, space telescopes in the future out of parts also talked about relying on slightly different polishing. But that said, you know, when you have active control, assuming you have enough degrees of freedom, that opens up a lot of possibilities, right? And so it may turn out, you know, in my concept, I definitely wanted everything to be identical because that's that's the really big payoff, right? That the mass produ production of these things, I feel is going to be the strongest argument for doing it this mm -hmm. way because uh, you don't have to specialize. On Earth, there's a lot of arguments back and forth, you know, economic and engineering and scientific. And, and, and so it's very hard to say, you know, for any general, it, it's hard to make any completely general statement about what's best. And so, and again, I, I need to throw in the caveat that I, I'm not an expert mm -hmm. on the design right. of these right. giant scopes. I just know that they will be segmented. And I've heard various discussions at conferences and in papers about how they will operate. But, you know, mass production is great. Like when you can build a thousand of a thing, that's typically better than building 10 of a thing, right? It's, it's kind of in the middle. Like the, if you need to build one of a thing, well, you need to build one of it. If you need to build 10 of a thing, well, you're starting to get to the point where if you're doing each one with an individual process by hand, that's probably going to bite you in some way. But it's probably still not enough parts to, to figure out a complete industrial process. And then when you're talking about a thousand of a thing, that's, that's pretty much a no-brainer. You're going to design manufacturing processes that make it easier to to just churn them out. One of the things that seems like it might be a possibility with this type of design is using that modularity to um, expand projects after they've been started. So I'm guessing that you've thought of, you've explicitly said that you've thought about being able to lose segments and being able to deal with those kind of losses. Have you thought about adding additional segments on? Like once you get up to your, your thousand uh, mirror, okay, here's what we're planning for. After that, could you do an extended mission and throw on some extras? I mean, yeah, that would be fantastic. It's definitely something I've started to think through. Immediately, there has to be an upper limit. We should be able to calculate uh, an upper limit on the size of this thing. And that limit is going to be set I think probably by our ability to control the whole structure, because we do need to be able to point it. Otherwise, it doesn't really work as a telescope. Uh, and so there are going to be differential force magnitudes across the, the mm. structure. There, there's various disturbance forces, you know, ranging from radiation pressure to the actual uh, gra gravity gradients across structures. So there mm. are going to be disturbances that need to be controlled against, 
which we posit will be accomplished by all of the individual momentum control systems of the modules working in unison. And so that's another big thing that needs to be demonstrated, that we can actually do this kind of coordinated control. But at a certain point, you're just not going to be able to control the structure well enough, and that's going to set an upper limit. And so um, a secondary task that we have is to place those upper limits. But assuming that we find that they're much larger than 30 meter scale, I, it would be fantastic to to keep growing just because more collecting area is always good. Uh, but again, there's, as with everything, there is a specific cost benefit analysis to be done, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it, it remains to be seen whether what you're gaining in terms of science is worth it, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're, if you're talking about like some super, super far off science cases, like imaging individual features on other planets, right? Which is always a very popular one. Well, the scales that you need for that are just, are mind bogglingly enormous, right? We're talking like kilometers. We're not, we're not talking about meters anymore. And so I'm pretty certain that this kind of structure will never grow to that. And we just would need a fundamentally different approach to that. And so if that was your science case of interest, this is not the tool for the job. But there might be other science cases that I'm not aware of that are somewhere in between the 30 meters that I'm interested in and then the kilometer scale that would be beyond the upper limit of the size of this that might make it worthwhile to keep expanding it. Let's talk a little bit about how you get these things to that L2 point. So I know uh, the whole idea is to sort of hitch a ride, but that's a very specific destination. So what sort of timetable are you envisioning for making this happen when you have to find uh specific types of launches. And I know that it's a solar sail. I mean, that's how it's going to get all the way out there. So maybe there's a little bit more freedom there because, you know, you have time and you have the sun's solar pressure to work with, which um, you have an inexhaustible amount of uh, fuel in the form of solar wind. But I mean, I'm thinking that you're going to have to pick some very specific launches in order to make this work, right? Because, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but if you have something that's going into, let's say you have a launch going to, you know, like station, could you hitch a ride on such a launch as that? Or would that not work because of the inclination? All, all excellent questions. Yes, the more energetic your launch, the more helpful it is, right? But, you know, with any, with any continuous low thrust propulsion system, be it... Um, uh, electrical propulsion or uh, solar uh, propulsion, you're basically trading time for capability, right? So these things, th these things have the ability to fire for a very long time. And assuming that your spacecraft's survivability is is long enough, then you will eventually get to where you're going. Now that said, every little bit of initial delta v helps, and so it, the the best things are things that are going onto energetic orbits in the first place, right? So uh, geosynchronous transfer orbits, escape orbits, things like that. However, you can find a continuous thrust solution from a parking orbit, like something going to uh, the space station, uh, or from any arbitrary low Earth orbit. Uh, as you point out, inclination changes are the most costly maneuvers. But when your target is so far away, so the the way to picture this is these things never go in a, in a straight line. And you, you can find lots of not, nothing in space goes in a straight line. But it, it's not a it's not a connecting orbit from point A to point B. What you're doing with a low thrust orbit is you're basically spiraling outwards. And so you can find dozens of animations online or, or images. You know, any Google search will reveal. If you're looking for low thrust trajectories, you're always talking about many many orbits around the prime body as you gradually change your orbital characteristic and you raise your orbital height. Uh, and so there's some great work that's been done on um, low thrust propulsions for uh, various moon missions. Um, there was a JAXA mission 
uh, whose name I'm blanking on, but they had a very nice demonstration of doing this with, with ion thrusters. And so basically by a continuous application of a small amount of force, which is what solar sailing is, you gradually, over the course of many orbits, change your orbital characteristic and get to where you're going. And so there's a, been a lot of work on very, very low cost uh, in terms of energy orbits patching us between here and uh, L2. Uh, and this is very interesting, of course, because that's the most economic way of getting out of the local Sun-Earth system is passing through that point. So yeah, so the answer is basically, it's a question of survivability, right? These things have to be able to survive for a long time such that you can get out there. And if you can place them on initially energetic launches, things that are going somewhere higher than low Earth orbit, then you've already given yourself a head start. And so every little bit will be helpful. So this whole thing is going to be very modular, which means that you've got nice redundancy, except for the instruments package, right? Have you thought about what is going to look like getting the instruments package up there? And have you thought about a, a way that you could maybe distribute that capability to make the thing truly modular? I have not thought about distributing the instrument capability. That's a really interesting idea. I, again, I feel like that's kind of trying to distribute it in a way that's not super overly redundant and wasteful of mass would get away from the exact cloning um, concept. But uh, that's definitely worth thinking about. Uh, you know, naively, again, this is one of these things that I'm punting on entirely, but naively I'm thinking that the instrument package is basically designed with the top of it uh, having a baffle of the exact same shape as, the, um, uh, as one of the modules. And then in your final assembly, you just basically leave out one or more of, the, of these modules in the middle and it would slide in between the sun shield and then in some not yet specified way do a precision alignment with the, uh, the rest of the structure and then you could package whatever you want in there uh, you know we've already talked about injecting these things again you could make many of these modules and replace them over time but yes this is this is the furthest out part of the whole concept um because really i've just been focusing on getting the primary mirror yeah. Uh, working, but but yes, this is this is again something that absolutely has to be demonstrated uh, at least on paper to make the whole thing viable. Uh, but yeah, so so first order cut is that you basically you know if you think about how space telescopes look of this sort, you know you have your primary mirror, you have a secondary reflecting mirror, and then depending on the design, you either have a tertiary mirror or you're going straight to your instruments package. But all the instruments are basically sitting around. Like if you think about the instruments in Hubble, they're they're all sitting on the aft end. A kind of in a circular arrangement in, in various payload boxes that can be pulled by the servicing crews, um, somewhat similar in James Webb, although less uh, circular. And, and then um, you, you have some kind of a baffle that sticks through or is wedged into the secondary mirror where the light, oh, sorry, into the primary mirror where the light from the secondary falls in and goes to the, uh, and is distributed to the various instruments. And so that's what this instrument package would look like. And of course, the tricky bit is the last bit of formation flying that that places it in the middle of the structure. And I should say the reason for um, doing this last instead of um, building the structure around this, uh, well, twofold. So first of all, we've already talked about that. It'll take a while to, um, uh, it'll take a while for the whole mirror to assemble, possibly years. And so uh, you don't want your instruments just kind of hanging out there. And then if any of them need cryogen or, or other volatiles, you don't want to basically be wasting time. So you want to launch at last. And the second part is that in the initial swarm, there shouldn't be a preferred final orientation of the pieces, right? So, you know, if you have multiple chunks of modules coming together first and then joining into a larger structure, initially they should not have a preferential placement within the final overall structure. It should only be after kind of a central critical mass has been composed that then you start doing a detail addition in specific places around the edges. 
Uh, and, and if you were building around uh, an existing central module, then you would um, initially have to force a completely hierarchical assembly. So you might have these things assembling in various chunks, and, and then you have those chunks uh, yeah. coming together. Oh, that's interesting. And then there's, a, of course, a maximum chunk size um, beyond which it wouldn't make sense to do this. So, so the initial swarming is completely random, and then, but after the first couple of, of attachments, then it has to become more, much more guided. Which honestly is very biological. Yes, a, a lot of this, a, a lot of the engineering of swarming has has very, very strong roots in. Um, biomimicry and, and observing biological systems that actually sound i i have a degree in, in genetics and that sounds a lot like development to me like cellular development where you know you can get a bunch of cells working together and they all kind of do undifferentiated tasks until you get enough of them together they can start you know deciding who's going to do what and then you you know, get organs and things like that. Yeah, and and I'm sure you know a lot more about this than I, since I have probably I not zero yeah. zero biology background. But but many of my colleagues in the engineering world do work on uh, specifically problems that uh, where the solutions are inspired by the study of biological systems. And so that's that's a very common thing right now uh, in engineering. So Nefa in the chat um, is asking if maybe you might be looking at some other orbit to put this telescope in, or is L2 uh, just simply the only logical choice? Uh, I don't think it's the only logical choice. It is definitely where I want to start because the solution will be, the, you know, the the demonstration of feasibility will be highly dependent on the selection of orbit. I wanted to start with L2 uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, as I already stated, it's a great place for a space telescope. It's, it's the reason why we're planning all of the next uh, few major space telescopes to go, to go out there. You're basically in a point where, to first order, you always have the, the sun, earth, and moon in a single direction, right? And so if, you, if you're thinking about your spacecraft orientation as uh, facing back on the sun, earth, and moon, then you have all the bright sources in the field, in the immediate field right behind you. You have your solar panels pointed at the sun and you're looking out into, into deep space. And so it's, it's a great environment. It's, it's also good thermally. It's also good for, for orbital stability and, and things like that. And as I said before, there's been a lot of work on trying to exploit the, the three body dynamics for very low energy transfers. And I believe that the same kind of math can also be exploited for low energy accumulations, right? So just trying to get things mass to the same basic point in space. And so that's why I think it's, it's a logical place to start, but it is by no means the only choice. And it's not even the only choice for a space telescope. You know, we have plenty of things in, in completely different orbits. Kepler was in an Earth trailing orbit, which was great for what they wanted to do because they wanted to stare at a single field. TESS is going into a very high uh, Earth orbit which is great for them because they want very large dwell times, but on fields all across the sky. And so again, there's examples of, of astrophysical observatories going into all sorts of different orbits. For a general purpose observatory, L2 makes sense as a starting point. So yeah, going back uh, to the question before last, um, these segments, they all assemble in these chunks. Now, I am assuming, though I don't know if you explicitly said so, although I, I might have missed it, uh, that this isn't like anything that's controlled from the ground. These segments actually find the best assembly or the best method of doing so like i just don't know how much you know artificial intelligence is involved here but it, it sounds like that that's what's happening right initially yes in, in, again this is we're taking a cue from biology right and this is um ben can probably chime in here the study of swarming behavior in biological systems like flocks of birds and, and uh, schools of bait fish things like that what the people who research these things have found is that there's not 
a global consciousness of what the whole swarm is doing. There's only really knowledge of what your nearest neighbor is doing. And by programming simple rules based on what the nearest observable neighbor in the swarm is doing, the uh, people have been able to replicate very complex swarm behaviors. Uh, so the initial assembly, again, with these kind of um, maximal number chunks, uh, which we have still yet to determine the specific number, uh, but let's say it's, it's 10, 10 modules at a time just to pick a number, right? So initially, these first 10 would just assemble based on local rules and local sensing. The cool thing about this is that the final product gets to use all of the individual computing and all of the individual resources yeah. of the whole system. And so as you get, as your chunks grow bigger, they have better sensing um, because they have a larger outer periphery where you would put various sensing elements and they have uh, better computation on board. That said, I don't know if it will be feasible to have the entire thing 100% automated. That is my goal, and that is what I would like to work towards. But if you are in a situation where you have a bunch of chunks and then you need some input from the ground, that's still not terrible, right? That's, you know, we, we will always have a lot more resources on the ground than we will ever be able to put up into space. However, the end goal is for the, the maximally sized uh, chunks to then coordinate, start coordinating with one another. Um, which means that they, of course, need some uh, near-field transmission and, and uh, reception capability, which they would have anyway because they have to communicate and downlink some way. Uh, so again, this is going to be another one of those things that's TBD, but uh, we're definitely thinking through the specifics of how it's going to work, and that's the, the basic scenario as of now. Uh, on the same vein, what are you guys thinking about power distribution? <laughs> uh, do you mean where it's going to get power from or how it's going to be internally routed? Yes. <laughs> okay, so the right now the, the crazy thought is, well, um, you could probably paint the bottom one side of the solar sails with photovoltaic material. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of active NASA research on flexible photovoltaics and uh, space survival, flexible photovoltaics. So that part is not super crazy, especially if you're thinking forward a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, so the bottom of the sun shield could potentially provide, uh, could provide solar power, which means that the, the final set of tethers that attach the sun shield has to be able to transmit power. But that, you know, that's not a super hard requirement. We, we have the ability to build fairly lightweight, um, electrically conducting filament cables. Uh, so, and then in terms of routing, these things are locked together. Um, I'm assuming a standard interconnect, right? Once they're, once the modules are mated, they basically have a standard pinout that carries data and power and can transmit both information and power throughout the whole structure. Is that compatible with the idea of um, having non-fixed linkages between these guys where they can kind of slide up and down relative to their neighbor? So uh, once they're in place, it'll be fixed, right? I, I, that's, oh, I see. I, I'm assuming the sliding only happens at the time of um, assembly and if you're trying to eject one of these. Super fine control, okay. Yes. The, the, to, for the mirrors to be oriented, that's why all the mirrors are on additional mechanical link. They're, that's why they're sitting on those steward platforms so that then the mirrors can independently move uh, while the modules are fixed together. Because segmented mirrors don't have to have uh, overall curvature like monolithic mirrors do. Each segment can just be oriented in the right direction. Gotcha. And we're also adding curvature, right? Because remember, we have the ability to in impose some curvature via right. the additional mechanical structure on the mirrors. Right, but it's like a giant Fresnel lens where you've got 
it kind of all gets fl flattened out and they don't have to be curved. They don't have to be ideally curved. But again, th that's one of the things that we're demonstrating now is that you can produce the kind of optical surface that you need right. uh, using just the mechanical degrees of freedom that we're thinking of putting in. Yeah, and I think I know uh, the hexapod uh, mechanism you're talking about, but could you describe a little a little more of what, what's in your head at this point? So for the, the hexapod, that's that's pretty standard almost off the shelf, right? It's, it's used in a lot of places. Uh, but of course, it has to be vacuum rated and, and so on. But if you or your listeners just uh, Google uh, Hexpot or Stewart platform, you'll see it's, it's uh, a set of probably pneumatic um, vacuum sealed uh, mechanical linkages that have the ability to do uh, effectively six degree of freedom. They can tip, they can tilt, they can, um, in some cases, uh, rotate if there's an additional stage. Uh, and they can also piston the entire structure that's sitting on them up and down. Uh, and slightly side to side. Uh, so these are incredibly versatile devices. They're basically like uh, taking a whole bunch of linear actuators and sticking them all together, but and then having them all operate in concert. So that will provide kind of the steering of the, of the mirrors. Um, and then also, if you, I think there's most likely images of this just online outside of uh, academic papers. If you look for the James Webb mirror assembly or the James Webb mirror design. Uh, you should be able to eventually find uh, press images from, from Baller Space and others that show that there's these cantilever beams attached to the backs of the mirrors that can then be used to, to flex the mirror surface. And so we're going to use that as heritage. And then we're also going to add additional piston actuators on that same backplate that can uh, push and pull different parts of the mirror. And so effectively induce sine waves in the mirror. And, and as you guys know, if you have put in a, together enough sine waves, you can produce any shape you want to. Uh, of course, we only have a very limited number of sine waves that we can put on because there's only going to be a finite number of actuators. But this is the principle behind deformable mirrors, which are devices that we use on the ground and soon we'll be using in space to actively change the shape of optics uh, to account for aberration and control for overall uh, image quality. Yeah, that sounds really useful. If maybe you had a mirror that wasn't manufactured quite right, you could maybe correct for that, right? That's so. exactly what they're there for. So again, if we think about things that are um, likely to, well, I'm not going to talk about the likelihood of W first launching, but W first mm -hmm. is the next major space mission that uh, NASA is uh, working on, and it's one that I'm um, personally involved in slightly. And uh, uh, W first will carry is the coronagraphic instrument for W first uh, nominally would carry a pair of deformable mirrors and high count deformable mirrors. So these are 48 by 48 actuator mirrors, um, which would be the largest uh, ever flown in space. And these are, would specifically be used to correct for both optical imperfections that are not correctable through manufacturing processes and also to adjust to the varying uh, spacecraft environment. So the changes, minute changes in the thermal environment and the stability and so on, uh, these mirrors would account for. And on the ground, we use them running at very high rate to uh, counteract the effects of the atmosphere. So for technology like this, and I know that there's a couple other, I think there's some companies out there that, uh, you know, we probably discussed on the show that are doing something similar, not for telescopes, but, you know, having things that can be, you know, like either assembled or manufactured in space. Um, have you thought about what else you might use this technology for besides telescopes? I can't think of anything right off the top of my head, but it's got to be good for something else, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, everybody across the board, um, starting from government agency, NASA, DARPA, the defense agencies, private industry, everybody has studied on-orbit manufacturing and on-orbit assembly. 
right? And then there's, you know, a bunch of use cases uh, ranging from the construction of large um, habitats, right? So for human, continued human presence in space, for uh, in situ resource utilization, right? If you can basically build up mining capability somewhere for, for of course, for science. Uh, and then a, a very big one uh, that maybe people don't necessarily jump to right away is, is for communications. If you can manufacture and build increasingly large radio dishes, you can do also, uh, basically, you don't have to do a lot of capacity planning. You can just create the, uh, the transmission yeah. infrastructure that you need as your loads uh, dynamically change, uh, things like that. So and again, a lot of the stuff is is in various governmental reports. So you just go out and, and Google for things like this, and you'll find a wealth of information. And and you know, a ton of super smart people have have looked at all these various things. In terms of companies, um, I I'm trying to think. I know for for a fact that um, Northrop and uh, Lockheed um, both have people who have who have basically done also kind of back of the envelope scale studies, maybe a bit more advanced, but you know, things that have been presented in public conferences. You know, there, there's these ideas about printing up structures. Um, I think it's Tethers Unlimited. I could be wrong on this, but yeah. uh, this is a company that thinks about all sorts of tether designs and, and they have definitely shown in the past concepts for these spider-like robots that print webs um, that will eventually become the, uh, uh, that become radio, radio elements, <laughs> uh, just giant antenna that are woven by the space spider, which I think is particularly cool. Uh, I also think this is something that, like, you know, if you go back far enough in uh, sci-fi, you'll always find whatever concept you think you've just come up with. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty sure somebody like Clark thought of this uh, 50 years ago. But yeah, th- there's a lot of a lot of active uh, work on this. And, you know, some of it is, is at this kind of back-of-the-envelope level, and, and some of it um, is using these amazing programs like NIAC, which is is there to to try out really wild ideas uh, and see if there's anything to them. So it's very exciting that we can work on this. What's interesting about this particular concept, though, is that it is a very decentralized structure, you know, Um, and I'm not sure if that's so much the case with these other things. So this works for a telescope very well, but is there anything else that you can think of? And maybe something like a habitat might be such a thing, but something that where you could just, you know, take various components out and put new ones in and it wouldn't make that much of a big deal because if you're building structures that are not so decentralized then obviously you can't do that so sure i mean this is this is something that to me seems a little bit different than all those other things yeah no for sure and and i pushed hard uh in the proposal phase on this this idea of modularity because i thought that it differentiated um our idea from what what had come before yeah i off the top of my head i don't know of a lot of really good use cases but I think were we to continue developing this, the various lessons learned and spin-off technologies, uh, algorithms would definitely find applications elsewhere, right? Anytime you're talking about anything autonomous in space, you're going to learn something that's going to have very, very good applicability to the next project. So I'll just lean hard on that. Okay, well, before we let you go, we have two traditional final questions. The first one's easy, the second one's hard. Um, so I'll go ahead and ask you the, the easy one. So our penultimate question is, uh, where would you like to be found on the internet? So I'll have a link to um, the original cornell.edu article that I looked at. Uh, but is there anything else you'd like to put out there? You know, I have zero personal online presence. Uh, but if people are interested in the other kinds of things that my group works on, uh, uh, we have a website that's somewhat well-maintained. It's um, sioslab.com, S-I-O-S-L-A-B.com. Uh, and that just basically talks about the, the the various things that I and my graduate students and collaborators are working on and all the different projects we're involved in. 
Uh, so if you're interested, please take a look. Great. I see uh, lasers on the front page, so this has got to be good. Yes, that's that's our lab. <laughs> and um, and our final ultimate question: um, if you could bring one thing with you into space, what would it be? Ooh. Oh wow. I mean, well, I guess so. The question is predicated on me already being up, which is kind of enough for me. I guess I'm going to assume that I have everything that I need to uh, to survive up there. Uh, so this is just something extra. All right. So I guess my my oldest daughter is, is four, and she is super obsessed with space right now, uh, which makes me very happy. I'm guessing she's probably a little too young to go up herself, so I'd probably take one of her stuffed animals. So at least mm. uh, she would have something that was uh, spacefaring. Cool. Hopefully that's not too cheesy. No, no, no. That's By far answer. not the cheesiest answer I've ever had. <laughs> All right, Dimitri, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you so much for your contributions. I mean, like, humanity's getting better because of people thinking crazy things, and you're, you're one of them. Thank you very much. It was a great chatting with you guys. We've got one non-launch event. So we mentioned this last week, but I'm going to go ahead and mention it again. Rendezvous and capture of the Orbital ATK Cygnus. Capture scheduled at 5.20 a.m. Eastern Time on May 24th. That's Thursday. And it looks like coverage is going to start at 3.45 a.m. Eastern Time. And then installation coverage is going to begin at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Alrighty, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Let's go ahead and deal with the show. Cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com, and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the ground control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at the Orbital Mechanics. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. All right, so that's it. We will see you in one week on orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.